Hello. We're back. We've got another episode of Connect This on tap. And this is our second episode, Sans Travis, which I thought I would say Sans because he would probably make fun of me for using Latin. Um, Travis got pulled away at the last second. So uh, we're going to be taking this without him being able to offer uh, that rich perspective that he offers. Um, and if this is your first show and you're just tuning in because you love uh, Deb, then um, this is how we always do things. And it's, it's totally normal. So don't worry about it. Uh, I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. This is a show I've had in my notes for a long time um, because um, I was hoping that, that these two characters would engage in verbal combat, unlike anything that anyone's ever seen before. Only in the pre-show, it seems like they're both reasonable people who just want to find good solutions to interesting problems. So we may not have that. So let me introduce uh, Deborah Sinpeer from Althea, uh, co-founder of Althea. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's wonderful to have you back. I feel like uh, you have both been on the Community Broadband Bits podcast and on um, uh, on um, other versions of the show uh, as we were kind of moving into the direction of it. So uh, it's just great to have you back on the screen again. Yeah, um, and then we also have Sasha Meinrath, who has been a guest on Connect This previously. Sasha is the Palmer Chair in Telecommunications at Penn State and uh, founder of XLab. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm only here because Deb's here. I mean, I I, I, get, I didn't realize I was supposed to verbally joust, but I, I was hoping to fanboy instead. Is that okay? It's well, the I, panel. It's yeah. I I feel like there could be some interesting jousting at Penn State. Like I don't know if you and, and Chris Lee are going to start like some kind of like uh, some kind of big feud or something to make things interesting. But but uh, Dr. Chris Ali is now at Penn State, uh, so. Indeed. I feel like a lot of people when they found out he was going there were like, what happened to Sasha? Assuming there couldn't be two of you. <laughs> oh no, time. we're building an army of political economists here. Stay tuned. <laughs> wow. Yes. So, um, uh, so uh, I feel like for people who are not as familiar with um, these two uh, folks, um, it is really worth noting that um, that you are both people who think well outside the box, who recognize not just some of the problems with the system um, that can be sort of fixed, you know, with uh, uh, kind of patchy solutions or or like minor adjustments, but thinking of whole different ways that we can try to solve uh, some of the issues, which I think you know you would you would identify perhaps as just making sure everyone has high quality internet access. You think that's right? Yeah, I think I think also too. We, you know, one of the reasons why you find that is because you, if you have like deep examination of the fundamental issues, like why are we, why do we feel like telcos aren't working? Why do we feel like folks don't have internet? And then we can, if we can rewind it back, and I think Sasha and myself are um, maybe come from those like wildly um, outside the box scenarios because of that sort of deep analysis. Sasha, yeah. do you have anything you want to add to that? I mean, it's just, it's absurd to live in such a rich country where we've taken for granted things like everyone gets access to roads, primary education, and we haven't moved in the direction of universal, ubiquitous, free baseline connectivity for everyone. So, you know, that's for 20 years been saying, hey, that's what we need. Times have changed. We've won the battle that it's an essential service. We are far from universalizing that service. And now the question is, can we move the Overton window to talk about free connectivity 
as a part of what it means to live in a civil society. I'd like to add a little bit to that. I, I think also, you know, I think from our perspective, you know, we we look at it from a perspective of ownership as well. Um, so you could have free access, but the ways that, you know, companies might monopolize that access using your data or um, having a free tier of like Facebook, Twitter, and WhatsApp and having the rest of the internet be paid walled um, can happen if we aren't careful about how we look at the models uh, within the internet itself and who's owning that. And for me, Ownership means choice. Are you able to participate in that economy? Are you able to participate in how you interact with that medium? Um, so a lot of, um, I think what we look at, like when we're building tools for communities is like, how can we empower that ownership for both the user and the community who's building it? Yeah, and I, I want to subtract from a little bit of what Sasha said rather than adding to it. And, uh, uh, but I, I want to know also, uh, Deb, what, I, what you added on is something that I think about a lot, which is um, uh, when Sasha says free, a lot of time, I think he's speaking both free as in beer and free as in freedom. Right. Um, and, uh, and I think it's important to, uh, to keep that in mind uh, as we're, as we're going through this to make sure we keep that in mind. Now, when Sasha says free, my skin doesn't crawl as much as when some other people do, because I get super nervous when people that I think have correctly identified the problem uh, want to just abstract away the real costs and the fact that someone does have to pay for this. Uh, and, and they may not have spent the years working on these models in the way that I know Sasha has. So I just wanted to, to note that there are people who are like, well, let's just make it free. And they're, in their mind, they're just sort of like, yeah, we'll like tax millionaires some more and 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 we'll pay for it that way. And that's it's not an unreasonable approach, but it's one that does, I don't, I don't feel like it's sophisticated enough to just make happen. Um, so I just wanted to know, I think when Sasha, you're saying free, uh, and I think we've talked about this before, then say a little bit more about how we'll be able to accomplish that without uh, going into the kind of spyware and uh, kind of abuses <laughs> of personal data that Deb noted. That's right, right. So the dominant free model being that you're actually selling a little bit of your soul in the terms <laughs> of privacy and you know, your most innermost thoughts, behaviors getting like shunted off to third parties. Um, that's not what I'm talking about, obviously. I'm talking about civil society making the investment as a society. And there's two main reasons to do this, right? One is that you know, there's an immediate return on making those investments, but there's also this opportunity cost. We're paying billions, tens of billions, and over the course of the last few decades, hundreds of billions in dollars in terms of subsidies and et cetera directly. So we're already paying an arm and a leg. We're overpaying for the service we have, but also there's this opportunity cost that I think COVID made very clear that if we don't make this investment, we're foregoing. And we're foregoing things like elevated housing prices and therefore tax income, but we're foregoing you know, good health outcomes, education, like writ large. I mean, huge opportunity cost to society that if we took the opportunity cost versus the investment, you'd realize to not make this investment is going to cost us more as a society. And therefore, it's not only just I'm talking about free connectivity to everyone. I'm saying like, this is the wise choice for taxpayers everywhere. I agree. Um, I made a funny face there for a second, um, which I often do in Sasha speaking. But in this case, it was because Travis entered the backstage. He says the issue is resolved. So welcome, Travis. 
Oh, sorry, guys. I'm late. I'm, I'm sure I missed a lot, so I'll be quiet and not. Well, no, we're so you missed. I'll recap what you missed. You missed that that the system is broken, and uh, there are ways to fix it that don't involve us um, having to uh, just pay off the big companies or uh, or beg them for crumbs that involve them using our data in ways that we don't want. That and we're we're sort of heading in the direction of of talking about, I think, the, some of the philosophy as to like why we're doing this work. But where we're going to dive in is the meat of the show. And that is how some technologies that are becoming available uh, are um, may offer different paths forward for how we can achieve this vision. Uh, so, I mean, I think there's a political dimension to it. There's uh, And there's other dimensions to it. But we're going to talk more about the technology, I think, uh, for the rest of the show. Uh, before we do that, Travis, Travis runs USI Fiber in South, in, well, in Minneapolis, um, and uh, and you had an issue, uh, but it's resolved now. So you can. Just... It was not. A, it was. It was not a technical issue. It was just a logistical issue. Ah. It's more construction related, but we can uh, we can delve on that later. So I don't want to miss out on the uh, the meat and potatoes here. Cool. So. Yeah. Um, so Deb, when, um, when I've, we're going to move now to sort of discussing wireless technology specifically, although we don't think that's the only way, um, Althea is doing a lot with fiber optics, but I uh, want to talk specifically about unlicensed and licensed, uh, and more specifically LTE technology versus uh, other kinds of wireless technologies. And, uh, when I have advocated and worked with tribes to help them build uh, 2.5 gigahertz networks and to, to connect tribes that are doing that sort of a thing. I've largely done it because I viewed it as the best tool, not because I thought LTE was a particularly good tool, but because thanks to the work of a number, and I, Harold, I mean, I, I'm just saying this because I'm ignorant. I'm not in a position of technical sophistication to judge whether or not it's a good tool, um, but it's a tool that's available because of the tribal priority window, which policy-minded folks spent years trying to make sure that that some tribes would actually be able to use the spectrum over their land, which is often not being used and they're prohibited from using. And so it became available and I kind of dove into it just because it was like, it was a tool that was available. And I've come to appreciate that you would make a case that this is actually the really great tool that they would want and not just a tool that happens to be available. So do you want to speak for a few minutes about why LTE is the right tool um, in these areas? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Um, and I think it really comes down to how we authenticate and how we talk to different devices. So um, we used to think about internet as like we deliver it to the home and then there'd be a router in the home and it delivers all these devices. And for the most part, the, the remainder of our connectivity was either at work or it was at home or at school. And there wasn't really a lot in between, but that's changed is changing and is extremely exciting. We have connected vehicles, you have smart centers, uh, smart cities, um, sensors that give us lots of great information. There's precision agriculture that allows us to, um, you know, save on fertilizer and water. Um, there's camera technology and there's all of this. And then of course our handsets where predominantly that's where most of us are interacting with the internet on a daily basis is in, you know, our handsets. Unless you're someone like me that has three giant monitors and on his wall and refuses to deal with the little screens and the tinier keyboards. <laughs> Do you have to realize that the younger generation is more increasing? Wrong. They're wrong. That's what you're saying, right? <laughs> um, so when we think about connectivity, like real connectivity, empowering connectivity holistically like that, then... Um, then a direct connection to the home is very limited. But with SIM-based 
authentication, we can connect to all kinds of devices on the same sort of radio. One radio um, connects to all of these. And, you know, we start getting into really fun like eSIMs or we get into like 5G where you can have multiple active uh, SIMs. And um, what gets really exciting is number one, you can connect your whole community. Like this is a smart community now um, with LTE technology. And two, you can do it in ways that are more private. Um, you can, um, you, you don't have to collect as much data about people. Um, and I think that's, that's a lot about what we work on is just, just how do we, you know, authenticate in, um, into, the, into the network and not have to have all of that sort of stored in a centralized way. Um, well, so can I interrupt you? Go ahead. Can we, um, before we dive into that, because I think that's really important, I want to make sure people have a sense of, um, and you can tell me that I'm wrong. I think of LTE um, and, and, um, and how I kind of expected this conversation to go originally before I got a sense that Sasha, you know, has um, uh, different points of view necessarily, was that it's sort of like we have one type of technology, which is like command and control, right? Where you have like a central network and it determines who can be on the network and what they can do. And then we have other technologies, kind of like Wi-Fi, which are kind of like anyone can do whatever they want as long as they follow some basic rules and no one can tell them not to do that. And it's probably a gross oversimplification. And I expected, you know, first of all, Deb, you've long been saying that LTE is actually a great um, uh, opportunity for decentralization. And that kind of confused me that those things. Um, but uh, I know that, uh, that, let me just let's stop there for a second and say, is that a good way to think about a difference between the types of wireless technologies? Uh, one is sort of centralized command and control and the other one being much more anarchistic. And Sasha, you can go ahead and jump in. Uh, that, that has more to do with the business model and other sort of statutory mandates about surveillability and, you know, copyright enforcement and things of that ilk that it has to do with any particular frequency. I will say that what we have seen is, for example, over just the last dozen years, cell phones, which used to have sort of a command and control sort of infrastructure mode and then a more distributed ad hoc mode, from the operating systems of the cell phones themselves, they've quietly removed the ability to directly communicate with each other. That was a business decision that was made. The technology in essence was made worse over time. But in essence, because technology has moved so far, computers have gotten so fast, the code bases have gotten a lot more stable, the possibilities today for distributed communications in many ways are quite a bit uh quite a bit larger than they were even a dozen years ago and we were doing kind of second first second generation deployments of cellular distributed cellular infrastructure and um to me that's a huge opportunity it's the same issue which is like when we first did the cost of connectivity report back when i was running the, the open technology institute we were documenting how Americans were paying such a, a premium, so much more than we should for existing service in fewer locations. And so the idea of having a distributed infrastructure that's community owned and operated that addresses some of the surveillance problems we have seen consistently targeting exactly the same communities that have the least connectivity today, um, that's a big issue, but also lowering the overall costs is a big issue. And then on top of that, you've got this network effect, which is that the value of the network increases 
you know, let's say exponentially based on the number of people on the network. So for communities where only a couple of people have telephones, it's not very useful. It's only useful when everyone has a telephone. And therefore we had a universal service mandate for phones in this country for decades and decades and decades. We're not doing that with this medium and we're certainly not doing that with the internet much to the detriment of all of society. Right. Now I feel like I want to, I want to make sure that I would give Deb a chance to respond to my technological understanding. Um, I do also want to note that I feel like one of the reasons we're not having that universal service is um, I think policymakers might say that they're trying to do that in a market-based system. And, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this show. We all have strong opinions about that, but I do want to focus more on the technology here, but I just, I'll just surface that, that there are challenges because of decisions that were made in the past that we don't want to revisit to resolving those. Um, not to say there's not paths forward, but um, that'll be a different show, I think. Well, but if I may, right before Deb jumps in, you know, the reason why technology is being made worse today is to prevent people like Deb from saying, hey, we can actually do this very easily and have community owned infrastructure. They have to work hard to keep us from utilizing these technologies. There's a, a multi-million dollar effort to prevent folks from using technology in a better manner. And so into that, I feel like Deb's work is so vitally important because she's working in exactly the opposite direction, making technology accessible. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that and 100% agree with you. And um, one of the things you were talking about is the cost. And I, I thought that was really interesting. So from a carrier's perspective, the average cost to acquire a, a telco customer is $1,000 and their ARPU is less than $40 a month. For a mobile wireless customer? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So I think when we think about it for this perspective, in fact, for the carriers, the system is broken as well. And so they're trying to do things like, like you said, make it really hard, spend policy money. Um, you know, Google makes their operating system harder to, or Apple especially, to interact with. But maybe um, other forces, I see where private networks, um, you know, private LTE, private 5G, and then community networks like this are pushing on that, making the business case that there are better ways to leverage um, that. And, and you know, I think for a carrier, if they can access a customer for less than that $1,000, it's pretty compelling. So um, really what we try to find is like, where does that alignment, where we can make that, that happen? Because right now, I don't think it's really working for carriers either. They're heavily debt-based uh, capital to, to build out networks. And with 5G, it's expensive. Let me let me redirect my question then to say specifically in a non-wordy way, I feel like in my mind, we want to have permissionless innovation in networks where people can do things without having to ask permission of the network owner. To me, LTE does not seem permissionless. It seems like we're just kind of have local warlords rather than a big AT&T or Verizon. But that, but but yet, I mean, I think it's 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 changed to, to Sasha's point um, very very rapidly. The CBRS made licensed spectrum more accessible for everyone 2.5 gigahertz did work on open source cores of course we had druid before and now we had uh, magma and open 5gs has really um, propelled innovation in lightweight edge core uh for lte so um I think these are, these are systems that work, though. I mean, like I sometimes wonder. I, I don't have the visibility. Deb, you have a business. Your business depends on on these technologies, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I well, we're early. So um, anytime technology is early, the first few years are interesting. Um, 
but yeah, they're, they're working. I mean, people are, are running these things and, um, you know, in fixed wireless primarily. I think one of the one of the things that isn't here yet is the IoT devices that connect to LTE. So your smart farms, your precision farms, that kind of stuff isn't quite there yet. So this is where innovation needs to happen. Um, it's also we're really in, I don't know if I can dive into this really quickly, but it's interesting right now as we are phasing out 4G and going to 5G. Um, the cost is so much different. Everyone's having to make this choice between, do we really focus on innovating in 5G? Um, do we, you know, while we're still trying to make our bread and butter. Who, the carriers or, or the, the people that are supporting equipment? Who's the who in your, like, when you say we? I think anyone who is looking at deploying LTE technology. Okay, so, so. infrastructure owners, network providers. Yeah. So if you're a tribe that's looking at that, if you're a business saying, okay, do I put in, you know, um, private LTE or this new private 5G, you know, all of this, because in two years, are you going to rip and replace? And it's pretty spending. So you, let me, it's more specifically though, it seems to me that like you have a given chunk of spectrum and like we could manage it. And again, I might be oversimplifying. You tell me if I am. I never know where my hands are on the camera. It's all reversed. <laughs> um, but you have a chunk of spectrum. And I feel like you have an option of being like, all right, everyone can sort of use it as long as they listen first and, and sort of move forward in that way. Or we could have someone that controls it and they determine it. Am I, am I oversimplifying? Or is this like, because this is the part that gives me the most nerves about embracing an LTE future. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, we could dive into the weeds. You've got different contention protocols for, you know, unlicensed, like Wi-Fi has a very interesting and not very efficient contention protocol so that multiple people in a cafe can all get online. It wastes a bit of time. And then you've got sort of different mechanisms, time and frequency divisioning of a command and control infrastructure. But there's two elements here. One's the command and control of devices connecting to a central node and the other is the command and control of the network as a whole so you can have the best of both worlds you can have an ad hoc network with time division duplex you know where you've sliced up the pie very cleanly to edge devices let's say to a distributed network where these are all handled separately and this is an hypothetical right anyone that's done first responder work knows we've got a variety of distributed infrastructure by fire departments, police departments all over the country okay. that have a very command and control thing, but they own and command and control that particular infrastructure. And I think where Deb and I are on the same pages, we're like, well, we should capture those same efficiencies, cost effectiveness and communications universality for communities, for tribes, for anyone that wants to deploy that kind of infrastructure. So one doesn't have to choose between like totally ad hoc Wi-Fi-esque kind of stuff and totally centralized command and control. There's variance in between. Yeah, we oftentimes call them broadband Legos, right? You should be able to like, you know, stock and build what you need to build for your community. And so Deb, you've, you've embraced LTE and, uh, and I'm curious, 
Uh, and I'll say that one of the things that I get about particularly 5G over LDE, but understanding is that, um, as Sasha mentioned, uh, Wi-Fi can be less efficient. Um, but you can do a lot of interesting things. And it makes sense to me, you know, that you'd want to do that in a factory or places like that where you have some devices that have certain characteristics and other devices that have far different characteristics. I can see how that would also work, you know, in a house, on a farm. I don't see how a central manager makes sense. You know, like someone who's running a network for a thousand households, how they can make decisions about all of those devices. And I, I worry about how one can decentralize that back down to the household having control over it. So can you walk me through a little bit how you think about that? Yeah, I'm not sure I completely understand um, how you're thinking about like managing those devices. And, and one of those things, one of, that is kind of one of the problems is that there isn't a lot of visibility onto all the different, um, you know, IoT like devices at the edge, right? This is a little bit what we get when we have the improvements with 5Gs. We do get more visibility um, and they're, but they're, they're, um, the you know there there's um it, it's really interesting too because i heard the statistics actually that the the majority of devices on lte networks are actually fixed um so you can you can uh tell the network that you wanted the fixed um to have certain properties and not switch between the radios as much and then you can tell hey i can see this so this kind of device is an android phone um roam between different things um, but a TV then, is not going to be moving around and you could tell exactly, that. exactly. So there is that kind of, um, discretion that we can build into the protocols that really make it work best for, for, for each device, uh, there. And then the other thing I think it's really interesting is that you can sort of set each device have different profiles. Say, you know, if I, um, I want to have it be part of a private network, what's when it's in a private network, I want to be part of a Wi-Fi network and I can prioritize those. And then when I want to go into public roaming, I can public roam. And then the other thing that this enables is potentially in the future, we can have inbound roaming. So that tribe could actually earn revenue from, you know, uh, people coming into the area with their phones and roaming onto their network and paying them like a, like a carrier. So this division between like a community network or municipal network and a public carrier like AT&T, I think is going to get blurred. Um, now, this is probably years of work still left ahead of us, but... Probably. It's not going to happen next month. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to keep pushing on it as hard as we can. But I, I think, you know, I and mean, that's that, that's huge. That hugely changes the way that we think about networks in general. It looks like you want to say something, Sasha, but I'm I have a, a related question to that that follows yeah, up. I mean, that. So fundamentally, it's important to also understand there is no spectrum scarcity. Spectrum and spectrum utilization is one of these weird natural resources that renews nanosecond to nanosecond to 100%, which means any nanosecond that you're not fully utilizing your spectrum is just lost to the space-time continuum. Now, Sasha, are you saying that specifically in the sense that like, if the FCC changed everything about the way it's doing, or even within the FCC's current management that there is no spectrum Crunch. I'm saying people would be shocked to learn how inefficiently we use this resource and even how what's available. To, so, like, you're not talking about like having to repurpose DoD and for, uh, spectrum, right? Even within the stuff that's available to us, it's still very inefficiently used, is what you're saying. I think. Yeah, I mean, if you basically said, "Hey, look, if you're not using it for your X, Y, and Z corporate network, that it should be made available on a nanosecond to nanosecond basis for free utilization," we would have a completely transformed digital ecosystem almost overnight. That obviously is a radical positioning in DC where we are 
giving single licenses to single entities, even when they may not use a piece of spectrum at all for days, weeks, or years on end. And so you have all of these communities that have no cellular service in the United States today, lots of spectrum available that are prevented from mm -hmm. accessing a resource that is not used solely because we have this archaic licensure spectrum. And I want us to be paying attention to that because the other side of this is it's insane <laughs> that we are not making more efficient use of the people's airwaves. And that too then plays into why people are trying to keep a lid on distributed technologies, on the possibility that communities can self-provision, et cetera. Deb is a major intervention that people don't want anyone to know about. Corporations don't want you to know that these technologies are not hypothetical. They're not science fiction. They're not down the road in the future. They're available right now today. It's how people in Enfield, North Carolina are on the internet right now. Use this one simple trick. <laughs> I want to bring, I want to get Travis's, uh, any questions Travis has in a second after I go with my, the one that I really am interested in. And that is, um, if you go back to when we were transitioning from dial-up, which really um, in the in the early days of dial-up, it very much was a kind of like one computer to the service provider, right? And one of the things that was happening as we were looking at people having more computers in the home and having one connection out is uh, something, and the story that I've heard is that Bob Frankston basically convinced um, uh, Microsoft to implement NAT, uh, Network Address Translation, which then prohibited uh, basically technically the ISP from seeing what was going on internally, thereby stopping the ISP from charging a household that has multiple devices, right? Because uh, you're on your side of the, of the NAT, you can put over however many devices you want and you have that one connection going out and the ISP has no visibility into what you're doing. You want to break that. And, and I feel like here's another, again, an issue where you then have to go to the ISP and, and, um, and I could be totally misunderstanding, but it, it strikes me that you have to get a SIM card. You have to like get that registered in their system. And, and I'm worried that we're giving them too much power, even if we trust many of them uh, in this, in this model. And we fought this battle previously. at and used to rent every single phone in your house individually. Right. It's not new. <laughs> and, right. And that was ruled to be illegal, right? The, the you know, 1968, et cetera, et cetera, Carter phone decision. You know, it was basically like, hey, now you can have your own phones. You can have many phones in one house. Right. That's and let's okay. just... And in fitting with this conversation, I'll note, it took me years after I learned about Carter Phone to learn that Carter Phone was the decision the courts forced on the FCC. The yeah. FCC was not on the side of the of the household. The FCC was on the side of AT&T. And, yeah. uh, and it's worth remembering that. So, so yeah. Deb. And Brand X, which pretty much eliminated common carriage in this space, is a deferral to the FCC, which is to say that the precedent mm -hmm. from the Supreme Court is to say, you're the expert agency which is why the FCC could say, well, we're just going to bring back common carriage. I don't know if this is going to send Travis into epileptic seizures or not, but like the FCC could decide to bring back common carriage if they wanted to in this space and on cellular networks. So Deb, um, why are you not ruining my, uh, my, my love of being able to have as many devices as I want on my side of the net? 
Well, right, because, um, and this is why, I mean, this is a little bit of a self-plug here, but um, Althea basically put the core, the EPC, into the home router so that you could do that. <laughs> That's the whole idea, is that you can build a little private network for your farm. I mean, a lot of this, a lot of what we were looking at was like um, farmers right now, right, when they have, you know, their John Deere SaaS-based system, they have no control of their data and, and things like that they were doing. But what if we made it as easy to build a Wi-Fi network as an LTE network? So it, you know, it, these things can be parsable, right? The way that we think about them. Um, and then I also think the way that uh, we authenticate right now with sort of a centralized database of IMSIs where they know everything about you and what you're doing and all that sort of things is um, also antiquated. Um, and as more compute kind of comes to the edge, you could just do something like a public private key pair that, you know, that only looks, Hey, do you have, you know, do you have funds? Um, uh, can you pay to connect to this network? Um, and, uh, and, and that's all that has to be. We can have more of a discrete sort of, you know, encrypted connection um, instead of this really sort of centralized tubing. Um, but, you know, the internet's a series of tubes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but, um, you know, well, so I mean, it makes sense on multiple levels, but to be clear, so what you're saying is, is that, you know, I'm thinking of, of, uh, an Althea network as being like one LTE system in which there's one entity that controls all of the devices. And you're saying, no, you've distributed that. So, right. um, uh, the, a farm, uh, an ag producer more accurately, perhaps, um, would be able to be a part of that network, but they are the ones that control all of the SIMs and things like that without having to get permission from the network owner. Exactly. Yeah. Or, exactly. Or in the same way that you might set up a wireless access point and have your own little network in yeah. your home or in your favorite cafe, you can do that with a cellular infrastructure and have all the benefits and interoperability with other cellular devices. And that, again, it's not some technology that's underdeveloped or may arrive in the future. This is like, you could do this today. Yeah. And, you know, then you run into this problem of licensure, which is that you're de facto, you know, uh, electromagnetic jaywalking in the middle of like a field somewhere and, you know, that to me is a very interesting sort of civil disobedience. To it comes it. with a greater penalty than jaywalking. <laughs> Does it though? Do we know of anyone that's actually, I, I feel like it's enforced about as much as jaywalking. Oh, that could be. Although, uh, you know, I, I feel like there's a, there's a, a future where it gets enforced a lot more rigorously if people take you up on testing that. <laughs> that's right. That, I, I think that's right. Travis, um, where do you want to plug in on this? All right, so let me let me just bring this down to the reality of today. Ooh. So, spectrum. Where do we get the spectrum to realize this vision? Practically. So I think that um, to Sasha's point, it's very you know it's extremely underutilized. It's not that it's not out there, right? So what are what are, and and you know communities sort of pushing on access to that. Obviously, we have tribes now that have like band forty one, which is two point five gigahertz. Um, but how, how, I, how much spectrum do they have available in that band? Gosh, you know, flash off the top of your head. Two point five is uh, two bands that are just under fifty, and one that's just under twenty. So you get about one hundred twenty megahertz of space. Okay. There, and it's contiguous and with two point four. So the chipsets for two point four either today or very soon are just going to 
scan in all of those frequencies. Now, hold and, say, and, Travis, sorry, can I? Yeah. So you asked where are we going to get this, and it wasn't clear to me the extent to which Deb's answer was. Yeah, it's, that's where we're, that's, yeah okay. even though it's there, and I 100% agree with you, we have we live in Minneapolis and St. Paul, Mr. Mitchell and I, and we have we have um, spectrum that's allocated to the Navy specifically for use on aircraft carriers. Well, guess what? I've lived here 52 years. I have never seen an aircraft carrier here. And if you pull out a spectrum analyzer, there has never been even one bit of data moved over that spectrum. So I agree with you, but we are prohibited from using it. And it is not going to change. At least I haven't ever seen any momentum or initiative to actually have that change. The closest is CBRS, which I will tell you from the, from a from a user perspective or from a deployment step. The problem with it is is the the PALs were so expensive that no but no small ISPs or community could afford to buy them. So now you're or the, sorry the the uh, private ones, the public ones. There's not enough spectrum there to even be effective. You get a 10 or 20 megahertz slice. I, I just want you to think about last night is an interesting evening. This hasn't happened since the Game of Thrones finale, but the um, Amazon is having the football episodes on Thursday night now stream over Amazon. It will destroy this network that we're talking about if all we have is 10 and 20 megahertz slices. So well, I, I would say that I think there's a few things sort of pushing on this this thought, right? So some of our clients are building private LTE networks, right? Um, and they're building it with licensed spectrum because they have the money, um, and they and and um, and it's saving them a lot because otherwise they're going to pay a carrier, right? They can build their own networks out. Um, can you just define for a second what a private LTE network is? Yeah, and and how many users are on it too? That's really important here because if it's a half a dozen clients, that's one thing. If it's 70,000, that's another thing. Sure. So what I'm saying is these are corporate um, entities that have 70, 100,000, hundreds of thousands of devices or you know, vehicles or clients or phones or whatever they're going to put on these networks. And that so is the, that, that, you know, to your point, you know, we haven't seen a lot of movement in um LTE spectrum, you know, more democratized, and we haven't seen this flexible spectrum. But you know, when the when the when the corporations are looking at, hey, I'm going to be spending billions of dollars in connectivity over the next ten years, or I can build out my own network, um, then then the I think the equations start to look a little bit different. And the big thing about licensed spectrum, to your point, is power. Unlicensed spectrum is oftentimes lower power. It really does not have the ability to penetrate the foliage and be as useful as carrier licensed spectrum that has the power. So we, we not only have to get access to spectrum and access to spectrum in a wide enough bandwidth that matters, we also have to get those, those higher power. How by, power by power, you mean volts and amps, just for other people who are yeah. struggling okay. to follow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I use power a lot, not to use mean electricity. <laughs> So if I could jump in here also, it's important to re remember there's sort of three levels to spectrum. One is like the allocation, which is saying like, okay, this is for television. This is for radio. This is going to be for cellular. The second one is the actual assignment. This is for your NPR radio station. This is for your local, you know, peg access television station. Uh, and the third is the actual use. And you experience actual use all the time when you're having to skip through all of those 
you know, radio stations that don't exist, right? It's not like we have contiguous radio stations on your car stereo. You're going lots and lots of space isn't being used. Same with television. Those are the, the denser areas of this. When you actually do spectrum measurement, as the NSF has done, you find that it's single digit utilization rates in some of the densest urban metro areas on the coasts. And that's the high point in the country, which is to say, especially in underserved communities, you're often looking at like low single digit utilization rates, which is to say 90, 99% of spectrum isn't being used millisecond to millisecond. We're just prevented by licensure, by allocation and assignment from actually utilizing it. So there right. is- I think we all agree on that. I don't think there's an argument among even any of the people who are listening, you yeah. know, if they're tuning into this show, I think they probably largely agree that the FCC should change the licensing approach to be much more rational. So um, if we all agree to that, what's the next step? Go ahead, Deb. Well, one thing I was going to say here too, maybe this kind of leads on as well is, is the technology isn't quite here to really utilize the spectrum in a dynamic way. Um, things like 5G slicing and of course, whatever's going to happen with that in 6G, when we can start using frequency and, and bandwidth, I mean, carrier egg did a lot for us, carrier aggregation for being able to utilize the spectrum more efficiently, but we're really, you know, because it was such a monopolistic carrier uh, ball game before, it was built for monopolistic telcos. What's exciting to me is that um, some of the newer LTE technology, some of what we're bringing in 5G is going to help continue to push on that space and let us use what we have much more efficiently. Now, that's years away months away i mean like uh, are there like i know like spencer well and i know that's like people like spencer are out there you know um friends of ours who are who are doing this work um i, I you know the, the the issue of the labs being controlled by the monopolistic companies basically that are that are able to do a lot of this work is serious and i'm i'm curious like is this something that a few universities are going to be able to support you know as well as i'm sure there's people around the world who are working on this in different ways you know uh, is this, I'll, let me take a step back. Right. Um, I remember like 15 years ago, I was telling my dad, like, everyone's going to be on Linux desktops in the future. Right. Like, like, how could we not? <laughs> like, well, definitely Linux know. does dominate the operating systems. I mean, it is the, the most widely adopted for everything well, not for, at, like home, but not for home. Right. Stuff. Exactly. And that was sort of my point. And like, not only that, but like you know, windows and Apple suck, like <laughs> they're not secure and they don't work particularly well. People might think they do just because they have been exposed to things that actually work well. <laughs> but like, um, so I, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, like it, it is this, there is a path to the future is what I'm seeing from both of you. That isn't just sort of like, oh, magically someone's going to have a breakthrough and we're going to have the kind of support we need of these projects to actually get them to be effective. Yeah. And I think it's the business case. I think it's the business case of, um, you know, uh, large companies paying carriers a lot of money. Right. Um, so <laughs> if you have someone with financial backing, a large corporation that's going to be paying, you know, millions and billions of dollars um, for connectivity from Verizon or AT&T that says, OK, look, we could just build our own. Um, and it's flexible and does all the things we want to do that, you know, that might change. Um, and propel the future. Also, I think that there's push from the government sector because they want more secure communication. Okay, so if I understand correctly, what you're saying is, and to be clear for people who are, might be 
um, struggling a little bit. When you're seeing these corporations that are building these private LTE networks, right? It might be some company that we've never heard of that is like very wealthy, that is manufacturing stuff that we don't even think about in our lives that goes into something else. And they are doing this. And you're saying that they have an interest in having this software that they would want to use to manage their networks. Is that... Something yeah, I'm well, getting. think about something like FedEx, right? And all of their fleet vehicles and all that. Think about how much money they pay for connectivity, you know? Um, and then all the, like, what about Starbucks? What do you think Starbucks internet bill is? Um, so, you know, they may not transform it right away, but there is a business case to start building networks um, with medium-sized or, 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 or smaller companies that are going to democratize it for everyone. And if... You know, just to push back a little bit on Deb, this might be where the where we can get oh. the <laughs> joust, joust. Dy dynamic spectrum access devices do exist right now and have proven to be incredibly successful. There's a whole dynamic spectrum access alliance. They have like a worldwide conference every year. Um, but, and this goes, I think, to Travis's point, the technologies are still not very user-friendly. <laughs> They're very expensive often, right? Which is to say... I think what Deb's, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think what Deb's saying is like, the technology isn't yet ready for a farmer to deploy it themselves. Whereas what Deb's got and is working on, it's like, this is a very accessible technologies that you can deploy now. But dynamic spectrum access and opportunistic spectrum access have been a battle that I've been on the front lines on in DC now for 15 years. Wow. And it's only due to the intransigence, this stubbornness in the face of science of the FCC that we don't see more bands opened up for that kind of communication services, which then lead to the technologies being still in the geekosphere and still very expensive. Can I just really quick, just a hundred percent appreciate your work that you've been doing. And I um, want to wholeheartedly agree and add a proof point where we saw with 2.5 gigahertz when tries went to deploy their network, the, one of the largest uh, you know, market segments is by Cambium deploying an independent protocol that's not interoperable. It doesn't have any of those pieces of LTE simply because, and you know, it got much more widely adopted because it was easier. And I think you're 100% right. The reason why we're not seeing more is, of course, cost. But more importantly than cost, I think it is that educational lift. And what's that educational lift? That this is desirable for outcomes X, Y, and Z or something else? Well, you know, fixed wireless around 2004, 2005 was very popular and kind of mom and pops and smaller operators could take it and use it. Ubiquity um, really democratized ease of access for that. And so lots of like um, entrepreneurial efforts sprung up. Um, that hasn't happened yet for LTE. And that's kind of where we hope to you know support that. But once we start seeing that for LTE, then we I think we will democratize it. Um, but right now it's really, you know, you need to be a network engineer. Travis, I feel like you were starting to go down a path and then we veered away from it. No, I, I think Deb brings up a very interesting point because if you've spent any time in like the WISP community, here, here's the problem. Like Ubiquity and Cambium, you basically put up a sector, you put in a password, you, you know, and, and you're on, right? If you've ever worked in the LTE world, it is a quite a jump from the knowledge you need to operate on the back end. And then from a policy standpoint, I guess, does the FCC or the regulating bodies view the five gigahertz Wi-Fi spectrum as wildly successful deployment and utilization of the spectrum? Because I, I get the sense that 
the more spectrum we can allocate to independent operators and independent technology companies, the more, um, you know, more some of this innovation can happen. But when they throttle us, like in the CBRS example, which I was 100% on board, but when you, but when you, when you get a 10 megahertz slice of spectrum and you spent $25,000 to build out an LTE network, the math doesn't work. And that's, that's sadly, so I'm with Deb, more power, more power, more power. And with Sasha, more access to spectrum. Until we can get those two things lined up, we're not even talking about getting access to mounting locations to physically put this stuff. Let's not even get there. But it's like, let's, let's start with spectrum and power. Mm -hmm. But I just fear that it's going to be 10, 20 years from now, and we're going to be having the same conversation because as Chris has taught me with these lobbyists, they have all the power. And if the lobbyist is, is Verizon, AT&T, DISH, and all these people, who, who moves the needle, I guess, is would be my, my ultimate question. So I think it's business case. I think there's a new business case that, you know, mid-sized carriers, corporations, it, other other people can have access to the spectrum. And I think they'll, you know, to, to your point about lobbying efforts, what if there is that FedEx who is saying, look, I need to be able to build up my private network. I need access to spectrum. Are you seeing, Deb, um, you know, people uh, creating businesses around going out to market private LTE solutions and things like that? Because I feel like that's what we need, right? Is is those sorts of entrepreneurs who are going to uh, sweet talk the, the people running those companies into saying, yeah, give this a try. You know, like this is really going to help you. It's going to be long-term successful. Like they're not going to be out like reading message boards and trying to figure it out for themselves, I'm guessing, so much as they need a vendor who's going to help them get them into it. I, at least that's how I assume the dynamic would be. Yeah. Well, Ericsson and Nokia are, you know, the the major players in the space and they do see a business case um, to sell more equipment. And um, they're also, um, you see a lot of hardware companies looking at how can they utilize that as SaaS based or even look at, look at John Deere, right? John Deere's getting into the um, LTE business. <laughs> um, you know, I just came from the industrial grade innovation conference. Really, really interesting. So much IOT on that space. Milwaukee has connectivity products, you know? Um, so the power tool company. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, and, and there's that opportunity. Um, you know, they, there's these, uh, the, the, there was these kits that they come in when there's a problem with the machinery um, and, and they come in and it has like a, a Peppa link um, SC WAN type aggregator. And uh, you know, so yeah, connectivity. Now they're still dealing with the, the terrible pain point of actually getting connectivity to the site, but um, there's more and more they're thinking about private LTE for supply line, for tracking, um, for smart ag, all these different in products. And there is a huge market booming there. To Sasha's point, we still haven't really quite solved the actual connectivity to the area problem yet. I think part of this also comes down to risk tolerance and people's willingness to do these simple civil disobedience. What, and by that, I mean, going back to your original example on you know DSL lines and early internet connectivity, and in essence, the nation as a whole started learning all about Mac spoofing and like copying the address from one computer to your router to allow you to break your acceptable use policy but so many people did it that eventually the telcos relented. And the question in my mind is like, so what does happen when 
a farmer sets up their own own little LTE network in the middle of nowhere. Using Spectrum that they've not been approved. Using Spectrum that's been licensed to someone that has no infrastructure and no intent to build any infrastructure in that community. I feel like that is an open question. And whereas, you know, at some point, the FCC <laughs> has to liberalize and change its Spectrum policy I've been working on this now for better part of two decades. And I'm telling you like, man, the, the wheels go so slow and the, the opportunity for the FCC to screw this up at the 11th hour and 59th minute, like they did with the television white space proceeding is so high that, you know, I think there is a place for civil disobedience in the space. And maybe that makes me a crazy radical, but having done that in the early days of the community broadband movement, I saw it being effective. Right. I mean, pirate radio is an obvious analogy. It may be pushed by LPFM. It's possible, I think, that 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 push might come from other countries as well, right? So, you know, you may find, you know, LATAM or Africa or something like that, where they sort of skip over and start to push that and that, you know, um, that pushes that conversation more worldwide. Travis, do you want to say that? I want to address address uh, this question in the chat. Well, let's uh, uh, well, hang on real quick. So I'll yeah. tell you what happens with uh, with Spectrum. I mean, there's there's it's no secret in the WISP industry that there is spectrum being utilized all over the country that people are not authorized to use it's near near band spectrum to and the only thing that happens is when somebody complains then they will investigate it and you will get a cease you know an order to, to stop transmitting it's a really tough way to build a network though i mean it works amazing until you get told to take it down and then you have to tell your thousand users that were relying on that that it no longer works so i mean i would not advocate that people do that, but it's happening everywhere. One thing that we did see with Ubiquity, right? So uh, Ubiquity used to sell kind of open, um, more open source firmware, right? So people would tinker it to use frequency they mm -hmm. could, you know, that would, or they'd buy Argentinian, um, yeah. you know, boxes. But what happened there, right? So the the FCC then went after the manufacturer to lock down everything. So, um, you know, there, there could be some unintended consequences of a purely, I mean, civil disobedience perspective um i i think you know we can push things from a business case um, and this is why i mean you know or you know like why why did torrenting turn into itunes right you know yeah yeah it's, it's it, you know what, what a lot of people are doing is buying international radios so yeah. you could you could buy international radios from all the major manufacturers heck even some of the manufacturers you could just put them into debug mode you could use whatever spectrum you wanted and a lot of people did it I mean, and they still do it to this day, but I, I wouldn't advocate it. That That's a tough way to to build a, a very scalable system. And on the LTE front, what we've seen on these private LTE networks, just to put in perspective, what we've seen is these are generally campus-based. So um, not, I want to make sure people understand, I have yet to see, and maybe Deborah sees something different, where, where there's a company saying, we're going to build a nationwide LTE network that we're going to operate exclusively on. I mean, there may be happening. I would tell you there's a limited number of mounting assets across the country. So, yeah, that could happen for one or two until American Towers towers are full. And then that's that. So you can build more towers. Well, yeah. <laughs> well you can, but building a tower here and there, but try to do it in metro areas. I will tell you that um, it's easier said than done. 
I, I think also too, one of the things um, is that there is a lot of private dollars that do want to go into telecom assets, whether that's towers or fiber optic or whatever that looks like. So one of the things that's interesting too is um, that needs to happen, I think, for this to be transformative is those funnels to be in place so that private equity dollars, small family offices, people with moderate size wealth can own these different assets. Um, and really there isn't that investment market right now. Um, so that will be also a really big part of this sort of transformative change. Sasha, you were going to jump in there from. Yeah. I mean, so, and, and there's lots of different hacks to this, right? So when, when in the 1800s, when a lot of like native tribes were set, were, were forging treaties with the U S they, kept any natural resources that they didn't give away. Now, clearly, since this is an age before wireless, they couldn't possibly have given away spectrum rights. And it's an open question. How is it that this natural resource has been stolen from Native Americans all across the country without remuneration? Right. And I'll, I'll note, Dara Blackwater has certainly been one to help publicize that. And uh, I feel like my reaction to that, Sasha, um, is different knowing that Gorsuch is on the Supreme Court, um, where there are some votes to actually make good on historic promises and not to say, well, it would be inconvenient to actually live up to the contract we signed. Um, yeah. So like, there, there's not necessarily a majority on the Supreme Court on many cases on this, but, but it's not crazy to imagine that with the right amount of work that uh, Supreme Court in the future decides that, yes, this paper with these signatures actually means something and, and tribes have a much greater access to spectrum. I suppose we could even ask, does the FCC have a right to regulate their airwaves? Yeah, I, I think that you could ask that question. It is hard for me to imagine a path where we don't come up with some justification for why the FCC does get to, just from a practical point of view and, and knowing that business rules in this country. So, um, but I'm, I'm, I think these conversations I, can go in ways we may not predict. Yeah, and but you also have like a whole, you know, this is only possible with a cabal that is maintaining artificial scarcity and price gouging simultaneously. There's a whole thing about the FTC being silent on these issues and not living up to its mission. There's a whole thing on the FCC not living up to its mission. There's a whole thing about the U.S. government not living up to its treaty obligations and on and on. And so when I say like there's a place for civil disobedience, what I'm saying is like this is an unjust, unfair, oppressive system currently. And into that space, it's, I think, a question that should be talked about Hack as to what is our role. Hack the tractors. Like, you know, <laughs> we should have a hack the tractors movement. Well, and I think that's the right to repair has a lot of that um, that vibe of, um, and, and you know, and I feel like hack the tractors. I love it, and I feel like historically that's the way the the term hack uh, has meant. I mean, you you spend, I don't know, call me crazy. You spend a few hundred thousand dollars, maybe a million dollars or more on some of this stuff. You, you should probably have some kind of right to modify it as you see fit without having to get the permission of of John Deere. Um, so. Um, I, I want to address something, though, that um, EJ asked in the question a little while back. Um, in particular, you know, I think we talked a little bit about what is open, some of the unlicensed bands. I don't know if there's anything we want to add to that. Um, you know, I know that, Travis, you're excited about 5.9 gigahertz opening up. 
Uh, but what is what is coming forward? I mean, is this something where like, you know, the 12 gigahertz proceeding is relevant? Uh, there's not a lot of bands, right? But 12 is one that's coming. What else should we be thinking about along these lines? I mean, the NTA has been in 20 years of internal discussion to make additional bands, federal bands, new bands available publicly. And, you know, there's a lot of navel gazing in there and they always say we need to do this and they always don't do that. I think a lot of this comes down to the lack of accountability for people to do their job, which is be servants of the public interest in this space. But again, going back to what Travis is saying, there's when we talk about like, where are we going to get the spectrum? It's like, this isn't a technical issue. This isn't an availability issue. This is like a licensure regulatory political problem. It's a political it's like, decision. The, the spectrum's there. Like we just don't use it and we create an ever increasing series of regulatory monstrosities to prevent us from using it, right? You now have to, you now have to hack firmware to prevent people from tuning in channels 12, 13, and 14 on Wi-Fi because people were doing that because it was available. And now they're like, okay, let's spend some money to make it impossible to do that thing. It doesn't have to be regulatory though as well. I mean, there is um, carriers that have underutilized assets on their, all these spectrum assets on their book. And like my point earlier, it's not really working for them either, right? They're not really, you know, it doesn't make, there's no business use case if you're spending $1,000 uh, to acquire a customer for rural, rural community with 600 homes. Um, but, you know, they don't necessarily want to move it outside of their assets as well. So what are the things that we can do from a business perspective is allow them to, you know, is allow like new practices around subleasing and, um, you know, have ways that they can um, utilize that spectrum. They can get revenue. The communities can use it. And I think um, I think that's exciting as well. We can move forward with that now, even if, you know, the uh, the regulatory bodies are historically very, 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 very slow. I feel like we're heading into um, that, uh, the, the period of talking about this subject where we're like uh, college students experimenting um, with uh, certain substances in, the, in an evening and being like, hey, man, like, what if we like did things totally differently? <laughs> And so, like, actually, I mean, that's fascinating, right? In part because of the system that we have, right? If you, if you want to say, like, I, I give up, and I'm not saying that you're saying this, Deb, but like, one path is like, if you give up on the idea that like well, the FCC could act in a way that is contrary to the interests of the F of the of Verizon, AT and T, T-Mobile, um, and you say, what can we just do with existing law and practice, right? Well, these companies have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize revenue, and if one could convince, you know, whether it's shareholders or others that have power to say these companies are missing out on hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars of revenue per year because they're not subleasing this space. Uh, and then that gets pretty interesting, I think, but it does leave us, I think, with further cementing in this idea that that they get to choose how to use these public airwaves in that way. And so, you know, it's a pretty significant decision as to how to proceed. Yeah, I think that um, it, it's more so, you know, about, I mean, one of the reasons is that it, the FCC is involved in this too. So when you, when you, even when you do sublease or you, you know, you sell an asset, you know, you have to, you have to register the FCC. So sort of making that whole process more streamlined. And again, I think it also comes back into like, you know, what if private dollars were able to invest in spectrum, right? What if you weren't a carrier or weren't a carrier in the traditional sense? Um, so, you know, I, I, I tend to think that, that new markets will also push open this question um, 
as well and, and give us different options to sort of, it, it's a multifaceted battle. You never fight a battle on one front. Um, so Sasha's over there helping us with the regulatory stuff. You know, we're, we're doing some interesting things. I think, I think it's a multi-front battle. And, and I think it's important to learn from history, right? The reason why we have the brand, or not brand X, sorry, the Carter Foam Supreme Carter Foam Supreme Court decision is that people started doing civil disobedience. That led to the opening up of AT&T's network, which made the computer modem legal, right? It was not legal until then, which allowed the internet to exist in the first place. Now they're claiming, no, no, we could never do this kind of distributed network because it'd be chaos and the network would be harmed. And I'm like, well, there's actually a harm principle. You can't disallow something unless you can demonstrate harm. And I have a hard time understanding how I could harm a network that doesn't exist in much of rural America. And so again, I would say, no, no, it's not a radical position. It's saying these precedents have already been set in telecommunications history. We should follow what happened before, because that actually was successful in creating the internet in the first place. You got to lead toward wrapping up, but Travis, you had unmuted yourself for a second there. No, I think if, from my perspective, I would rather see more power and less spectrum as the next step. So if they if they could increase power in the six gig band and in the and in the five nine, and you know that's uh, the six gig band is a is 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 a large swath of spectrum i think that would do more good in the short term while we go for some of these aspirational goals the other question i guess i had before we go is is we talk about the spectrum but when people buy blocks of spectrum or companies do or investment houses do that's their asset isn't it it no longer belongs to you know the it's no longer open for anyone to use so you know they, don't you think it would just be such a radical shift and maybe unachievable shift to have the to have all the spectrum be re-put back into the public domain and divvied back out? I'm just curious logistically if that and politically if that could ever even happen. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend doing that. In fact, I'm okay. not for like the seizure of spectrum. But what I am for is kind of a use it or lose it or use it and or share it mandate. Which is to say, isn't there, isn't there something you don't get in to there squander this public resource. You don't get to squander the public air airwaves and charge predatory pricing because you've got an artificial scarcity caused by a government-issued monopoly. I'm saying, like, look, use it. But if you're not using it, you don't get to just hoard it. That's all. And didn't isn't that what happened with Dish Networks though? Didn't they have a timeline where they had to use the spectrum or? They lost it. Isn't that kind of already in play or not? Well, that was from I think a specific merger requirement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so that is, kind of that kind of concept has happened. This but is we refuse to make policy effectively. Instead, we tack it onto some merger requirements so we get okay. some good policy here and there for short term. Well, if you could make some policy, let's turn up the juice on the six gig spectrum. And then yeah. I think that that would do a lot of good to get us at least something in the near future. All right, I want to I want to address one last comment. We've had a lot of really great comments from people, um, but I just wanted to to throw this one at Deb and give her a chance to uh, uh, respond back. Uh, Matt Larson's friend of the show. So, uh, what do you say? Oh, and for people who might be listening on audio only, it says mesh networks, especially ones uh, dependent on residential rooftops, have not scaled. There's a long history of it being a failure, um, and I'll. 
just yeah, also know that really Mesh NYC would disagree, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think it's because when we traditionally think about networks, we think about the infrastructure layer and the service and OPEX layer, where we the operational part of it, as being one company, right? But models like um, what we saw in Ammon, Idaho, right, where the infrastructure can be, you know, um, owned, you know, municipally, but many different providers can provide coordination and, and service and give users choice. That's what it makes it really interesting. And that's kind of what we're doing at Althea. You can have infrastructure owners um, and then you have a different coordinated layer. But just having, um, you know, people be sort of responsible for their own coordination. Radio needs a lot of coordination in order for it to be really, really effective, especially when we're going to licensing and there's safety reasons and things like that too. Um, so I think the important part about the reasons why it didn't work is because there wasn't a sort of, you know, approach to how do we incentivize a separate management layer? Um, and I think that's really, really critical if we're going to have decentralized networks. Yeah, and I, I would just say it really depends on what you're talking about in terms of mesh and what you're talking about in terms of scale. So by 2005, we were building multiple metro scale mesh networks all around the globe. It was pretty standard to have fairly distributed ad hoc systems. This isn't to say there weren't some components that sometimes were architected to be hierarchical within those meshes. Right. But in fact, you know, it is scalable. And, you know, I think we're we might disagree is really on like a particular form of ad hoc mesh scaling up to a certain scale based on certain protocols because of the overhead that would then flow over the network itself, in which case I would vociferously agree that that's not a scalable system. Right. But again, those networks run into the buzzsaw of destabilizing a dominant business model that is much better capitalized and has a much better PR campaign and lobbying efforts behind it, but you could easily share connectivity at scale of communities, neighborhoods, and even cities via a distributed, sometimes even ad hoc infrastructure. And we have one final question that uh, Travis can be brief on. Uh, did you turn on the Tirana uh, pilot on Tuesday? And uh, how is it going? Uh, it is up and running and testing is actually happening as we are speaking here. So I don't, um, I don't have a lot of data yet, but I did have a nice uh, kind of some interesting technical conversations on how people think it works. So I'm going to... Um, I will be able to report back in on the next episode and then I'll be able to also report in, is it even technical or is it even financially viable? Because the one thing we haven't spoke of here is the problem I feel in the wireless industry is we have been spoiled with the, what the hundred dollar radios, the hundred dollar clients and the $300 access points. So when people have that in their mind, and when you come to them with a $100,000 tower and a $1,000 client, the math changes. So the the uh, we need to talk about the technical viability of Tarana and the financial feasibility of it. So those will be things I can report in next time. And as But I will say, Sasha, as somebody that ran a 2,500 node mesh network in a metro area, terrible, terrible technology. <laughs> so I'll just leave you at that. But, 
um, this has been a, this has been a fun show. I really appreciate uh, Deb and Sasha, um, not just coming on the show and doing great, but also putting up with my uh, scheduling. And um, I'll say that <laughs> the thing that this show needs more than anything is a scheduler. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, you know, Rye does a great job with the engineering. We could always, you know, like with a, a technical person that had more time, we could do more things. But I feel bad for what I put my guests through as we're trying to find time. So thank you so much. Hey, for hey, hey, hey. What about me? <laughs> You're always available. You're okay, just hanging sorry. out. <laughs> <laughs> sorry I was late today, guys. Thanks for the conversation. Very interesting. And uh, we will be... Um, uh, back next week, I hope. I just sent out a proposed time to Kim and Doug for uh, Thursday. We'll see if we can make that happen. Sort of uh, slip it in between my odd schedule of September. And uh, But otherwise, we'll be back as soon as we can uh, with another episode. Um, but Deb uh, and Sasha, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks awesome. so much for having me. Take care, everyone. It's Thanks been a fun it. episode of Connect This. Mm -hmm.